Please turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. As you're turning there, just thinking this week about, well, in this text today, the, the whole concept of authority really just jumps out of the text. And I can't help but think of just current events. What is the current event in the newspaper that's just everyone's talking about right now? The shutdown. The government shutdown. Of course, you had people talking about that, you know, the sky was going to fall when the government shut down and different things were going to happen. Of course, some things have happened, some things haven't happened, but the government is shut down. And in this squabble that's going on, and to be honest with you, weeks like this make it hard to practice Romans 13. (laughs) Obey your earthly leaders, right? The government officials who've been placed over you. But, um, During this squabble, there's been arguments about authority. Well, the president doesn't have the authority to do this. Well, the Congress doesn't have the authority to do this. And there's this battle over authority. Who's in control? In reality, the beauty of our system of government here in the United States is that there isn't a centralized authority. There are checks and balances in place. The reason we have this government shut down right now is because those checks and balances are actually working. So you can actually be thankful, even though it's not something fun to go through, listen to all this political squabbling. But don't you, aren't you glad that we don't have a, a dictator that makes the government continue to run at his will? We live in a nation where there are checks and balances. So authority is not centralized. The president only has so much authority. He can't pass a budget. He's dependent upon Congress to do that. Congress only has so much authority. The Supreme Court holds even those two branches of the government in check as well. And they only have so much authority. But every now and then, one of these branches of the government will exceed their mandate, won't they? Perhaps the Supreme Court will actually legislate instead of just rule on current legislation. And actually, by their judgment, put laws into place, which is beyond what the scope of what they're supposed to do. Sometimes the president will overstep his bounds. Instead of just waiting for Congress's approval on this or that, he, he appoints special czars or whatever to run things that normally would have to go through the Congress. So there's always this an attempt to grab more authority. And as sinners, well, and sinners are the ones running our government, just, as, just like we're all sinners. But as sinners, they're always grabbing for more power, more authority. Today's text is all about authority. The authority of Jesus, the Son of Man, to forgive sins. Jesus' divine authority is on clear display in today's passage. There's no question about whether or not Jesus has authority. So constitutional scholars can, can, can sit here and debate about who has the authority to do this or that in our government. It's the president, it's the Congress, it's the Supreme Court. There's no debate in this passage who is the one who has absolute and ultimate authority. In this passage today, we see Jesus' divine authority clearly on display. And so we're continuing in our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, and we come to one of the most uh, popular and colorful passages in the story of the life of Christ, and that is in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So go ahead and stand, if you would, as we read this passage of Scripture. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read down through verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. I've said it before, this carries as much authority as if Jesus himself were standing here in the flesh speaking to you. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, 
It was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Heavenly Father, now we ask that you bless this reading of the word, and we pray that you would grant me the grace to speak the word, to preach it accurately, and grant all of us the grace to hear it accurately. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our heart with your word. We praise you that it does not return void. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. And I pray, Father, that you'd speak to us through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. As I said, we're continuing our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. This is the series that we are in right now where we are walking through the life of Christ. Our hope is to see Christ more fully and thereby worship him more rightly. This series is a verse-by-verse walk through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a chronological journey through all four Gospels. Now, first, I want to remind you where we are at. You see that we are at a point in Jesus' ministry where he's been going around the region of Galilee, from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue, preaching the Gospel, healing diseases, casting out demons. But of those things that he was doing... Clearly, his main aim was to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Mark has already given us the summary of Jesus' message in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we see in today's text again clearly that Jesus' first priority was preaching. Right there at the very beginning, Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. That was why he was there. He was preaching the word to them. He's preaching the same message of the gospel of the kingdom. And that's why he had come. Now you may be tired of hearing this, but we need to say it again and again. The preaching of the gospel was what drove Jesus' earthly ministry. His main ministry wasn't miracles or anything else. He came to proclaim and to live out the gospel through his death and resurrection. If anything, it seems that from the reading of the gospels, that the miracles sometimes interfered with or even interrupted the preaching, not vice versa. I mean, you never see Jesus show up to a town and say, hey, let's let's do some miracles now. And then the crowd interrupts and says, no, 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 we want some preaching. 
It's always the other way around. It's the miracles that tend to interrupt the preaching of the gospel. People sometimes, though, couldn't hear the word because all they wanted was the wonders. But the wonders simply testified to the word. Or to say it another way, the miracles were pointing to the message. So we've got to get that clear in our mind that the main, and we'll say it over and over again as we go through the life of Christ, the main message of Jesus, the main mission of Jesus was to preach and to live out the gospel. You know, I think about yesterday I was at a a swim meet for my daughter, and I'm looking around, and everyone's holding these devices in front of their faces. I mean, you look across, I mean, everybody has either one like this size or a big one or something, something, a screen in front of their face. And I, I just got to thinking, less, I, I got to laughing because um, just what this is, it's, it's supposed to be a phone, right? This is a phone. The main purpose of this is to make telephone calls, believe it or not. We still call these phones. It is an iPhone. Okay, we don't call them computers. We don't call them gaming systems. The main purpose of this is to make a phone call. But I think in this day and age with kids, you know, either texting or emailing or doing, playing games, whatever else they do with this thing, if you were to tell them, you know, you can actually dial a number and call someone to speak to them voice to voice on this thing, they'd probably go, really? It does that? Yeah, it's, it's called a phone. And I think if people looked at Jesus' life and they wanted all the gadgets They wanted all the fluff. They wanted all the stuff. The miracles, the shiny stuff. And the basic, simple message is you need to repent. Turn to the Lord. Turn to God. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. And Jesus is saying, of who I am, the good news of the kingdom, I am ushering in the kingdom. That oftentimes went unheard, not because Jesus wasn't preaching it, Because they weren't hearing it, and they simply wanted the wonders. We come to this text today, and again, we see that Jesus' word is primary. Now, this is one of the most famous and colorful stories of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Mark does a great job here. I I love Mark's writing. I think Mark is my favorite of the Gospels. Someone asked, I think my son asked me, Dad, which is your favorite of the Gospels? And I hadn't really thought about that before. But it would probably be Mark. Because I think Mark has this great way of of using an economy of words, yet painting a very vivid picture. And we see that here in today's text. Now, in this story today, in this very vivid scene that Mark paints for us, there are four main groups of protagonists, four main groups of people that are acting in this story. First, there are the crowds that have gathered. Secondly, there are the five men, and that is the paralytic and his four friends. Thirdly, there are the scribes and the Pharisees. And finally, there's Jesus. And what we want to see by looking at this text today, I want us to see there are four different views of Jesus that emerge from these four different protagonists. Four different views of Jesus. That's going to be our structure today. We will look at the four different views of Jesus on display in the text. The crowds, the paralytic and his friends, the scribes and Pharisees, and finally Jesus himself. What does he say about himself in this text? So let's start with the crowd. How did the different people in the story see Jesus? Well, the crowd saw him as a miracle man, so they responded with curious excitement. They saw him, for the most part, most of the crowd, there were some exceptions, but most of them just simply saw him as a miracle man, and so they responded with curious excitement. 
By now, large crowds have become associated with Jesus. Even though, as we have stated, Jesus' main mission was his message, he has, however, been demonstrating divine power by performing great signs and wonders, and therefore he's drawn attention to himself. He's drawn crowds. He has performed amazing miracles like last week's astonishing healing of the man with leprosy. This guy had leprosy from head to toe. And as a result of these miracles, Jesus' popularity had swelled. We saw this last week. That after he healed the leper, remember that? He healed the leper. He commanded him not to go tell everyone. But of course the leper disobeyed. And the result was that Jesus wasn't even able to enter towns because of the crowds. But at some point, he and the disciples decide as they're traveling around Galilee to return to Capernaum. They decide it's time to return home to Capernaum. And that is called home in this passage. Despite the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that Nazareth was his boyhood hometown, Capernaum had become his home base, the home base of his Galilean ministry. This is probably because, number one, he was run out of Nazareth. Number two, Capernaum was the most important city in the region. And number three, it was the home of his very first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we read about that in chapter 1, verse 29. So we look here in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 again. It says, He returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. So he returns home, perhaps to get some R&R, who knows. And he can't even escape the crowds back at home. The house where they were staying was most certainly Peter and Andrew's house. And most likely it was not a big house. Probably no more than 50 or 60 people could squeeze into the main room of the house. Uh, And then there were probably more people pressed in all around the house looking in the windows. And obviously, as from the text here, looking in the front door so much that they were blocking that front door. Just trying to get a glimpse of the miracle man. They had curious excitement about this Jesus. There's no doubt that Jesus was popular and that the crowds were curious and excited about him. All the buzz in the region was about Jesus. Jesus was the hot topic. As I said once before in a previous sermon, he would be trending, right? He was the, he was the trending topic on Twitter if they'd had Twitter back then. The crowds were excited about him, but never do we read in the Gospels that Jesus was excited about the crowds or the attention. It's very interesting. Instead, we see Jesus bemoaning the fact that so many have come to him for the wrong reasons. He knew that admiring crowds doesn't necessarily translate into successful ministry. For he knew that their excitement was shallow. He knew that their admiration of him was fleeting. Most of the people in that crowd were spiritually passive, indifferent, and uncommitted. Friends, we must see that being in a crowd that is excited about Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. Let me say that again. Being in a crowd that is excited about Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he was fairly popular, even right up to the very end. All throughout his ministry, he had huge crowds interested in him. But in the end, there were only a handful of disciples that truly followed him. Many liked Jesus. Many admired Jesus. Many were enthusiastic about Jesus. Many were curious about Jesus. Many were amazed by Jesus. But only a handful truly followed 
Jesus. That's because liking, admiring, enthusiasm, curiosity, and even amazement costs nothing. It doesn't cost you anything to be amazed by Jesus. It doesn't cost you anything to be curious about Jesus. It doesn't cost you anything to even admire Jesus. But true following costs. It seems like Jesus was always trying to say things to weed out the crowd. Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in battle, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Being a disciple, being a follower, costs. Crowds get smaller when that kind of talk that Jesus just gave is taken seriously. In Jesus' day and in our day, too. You talk like that from the pulpit, crowds get smaller. It's the same thing in our world today as it was in Jesus' day. Jesus has many admirers, but few followers. Jesus has always been high in the popularity ratings. Okay, take an opinion poll today. What do you think about Jesus? He will rank very high. People today will quickly tell you that he was a great man and they admire him. But they have no intention of giving up their way of life to follow him. That's because the Jesus the crowd is excited about is the Jesus that the crowd wants to serve them. Instead of the Jesus that they should serve. The Jesus the crowd is excited about is a Jesus they expect to serve them. Instead of a Jesus they're willing to give up everything to serve. I'm afraid that even in the church, there are many who think that they are following Jesus, but in actuality, they're simply part of a crowd. Jesus himself said that there'll be some who come to him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he says, depart from me for what? I never knew you. The examining question for each of us is this. Is my relationship with Christ one of superficial excitement and admiration? Or have I counted the cost and have I chosen to follow him no matter what? Am I coming to him to be his slave? Or am I just another admiring face in the crowd? The crowds admired Jesus and they were excited and curious to see what he would do next to amaze them. Well, they didn't have to wait long. So next I want us to look at the paralytic and his friends. The paralytic and his friends saw him as more than just a man. So they responded with active faith. They responded with active faith. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. These men come and they are desperate to get their friend to Jesus. They knew that Jesus was the only 
hope for their friend. They weren't being part of the crowd, curiously standing by, excited to see Jesus do some sort of trick. They had to break through the crowd because they knew they desperately needed Jesus. But they couldn't get to him because verse 4 says they couldn't get near him because of the crowd. So here are these guys. They have a friend who desperately needs Jesus. They know that Jesus is the only answer for their friend, and the crowd won't make way. What does that say about the crowd, by the way? That the crowd was self-seeking, self-indulgent, self-serving. Here's a man who desperately needs Jesus, and no one will make way. But these men won't be denied. You see, they have a different type of understanding about Jesus than does the rest of the crowd. You can see it in their urgency. They didn't just show up to Peter's house that day and say, Oh, man, it's crowded today. Let's come back tomorrow. They couldn't wait another day. I think these men also knew because of their faith and because of how Jesus responded that they knew they needed not just physical healing for their friend. They needed sins to be forgiven. And when you know your sins need to be forgiven, you can't wait another day. When you've been made aware that you are hanging over hell by a thread that's fraying every day that goes by, you know you can't wait. You've got to have Jesus now. And that's how these men were reacting. They weren't going to wait another day. There was urgency. They had to get their friend to Jesus. And you can see it also in their resourcefulness and their creativity. They won't take no for an answer. So they climb up on the roof. Now, you probably know that houses in that culture had flat roofs that either had a ladder or a staircase that went up to them. And you know from reading the scriptures that the roofs were used for all kinds of other things. For example, in Acts chapter 10, Peter's up there taking a nap on the roof of the the house where he was staying when the Lord appeared to him in a vision. And and so that wasn't very uncommon to get on the roof. We think about getting on the roof. If one of our kids said, hey, I'm going to get on the roof, we said, no, don't. It's not these pitched roofs. So this wasn't uncommon. But what was uncommon was to dig through the roof, which is the next thing they did, verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Literally, this reads, they unroofed the roof. Not only do they have a sense of urgency, not only are they resourceful and willing to, they're willing to put in some hard work to get this guy to Jesus. They had to break through this roof. The roofs were traditionally made of thatched branches mixed with mud plaster. And Luke tells us that this roof also had clay tiles on it. So their hands may have been bloodied by the time they got through the roof. Nothing was going to stop these guys. So we read in verse 4 that when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. What a scene. I mean, I wish I could just be there sometimes. I wish I could get a little bit more details from Mark and from Luke, Matthew, and from John. Just give me a little more details. Just imagine these guys, this conversation. Okay, we've got to get this guy to Jesus. What are we going to do? Let's go up on the roof. They get up on the roof. Now what? Let's dig through the roof. Really? Yes, let's dig. Let's just dig right through the roof, you know. And the paralytic's probably saying, yeah, yeah, just dig through the roof. And then they begin to lower him down. And I'm sure they were wondering, can we do this? This is kind of dangerous. And the paralytic says, if you drop me, I'm paralyzed anyway. Just let me down through the roof. So there they go. And, and they get this guy down, probably using fishing ropes. This was a fishing community to lower him down to Jesus. One thing is for sure, these guys put their belief in Jesus into action. These guys had active faith. Faith that is true and alive is faith that acts. Belief in motion is true faith. What good would it have been for these men if they believed that Jesus, yes, he can heal our friend, but when they saw the crowd, they simply gave up. 
James 2, 4 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see the difference between these guys and the crowds? The crowds were there passively waiting for Jesus to do something for them. But the four friends and the paralytic were actively seeking Jesus because they recognized they desperately needed him. There is a type of belief in Jesus that's simply a dead belief, a crowd belief. And there's a belief in Jesus that's an alive belief. It's an active belief. It's the belief of these five men. Now, I can also only imagine Jesus' reaction. I've been interrupted in sermons before. Okay? I can get distracted sometimes. But, you know, crying babies don't bother me. People getting up and walking out. Yeah, a little bit. All right? But, you know, there are distractions that happen. But never have I had the roof begin to hit me in the head. And clay beginning to hit me in the noggin as I, and look up. And see little hands starting to break through and pull back big old chunks of the roof. I can't imagine the distraction. I can't imagine. This was Peter and Andrew's house. You know, Peter was a little bit of a hothead. I'm sure people knew that. I and mean, it took some courage to break through this roof. Right? I can't imagine what else going on here. But, but we know that Jesus reacted with such positive joy. Because he sees these guys coming through. He sees their faith. And he pronounces that this man's sins are forgiven. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Now, not only was no one expecting someone to climb up on the roof and dig through to get to Jesus. This thing, what Jesus said here, that he saw their faith and then said that your sins are forgiven. That had to be totally unexpected. When this paralytic is being lowered down, I bet the crowd started getting excited. Hey, you got a sick person here. We're going to see some stuff. They weren't expecting Jesus to look at the man and say, oh, your sins are forgiven. They were expecting him to say, get up, walk. This was not what everyone was expecting. And I'm sure this was a shocking word that came out of Jesus' mouth because any good Jew would have known. What the Pharisees know here later on, as we'll read in a second. There's only one person in the universe that can do that, and that's God. Now let me say again, that real faith is faith that is active. Look here at what Jesus says, what it says about Jesus. He saw their faith. He didn't just perceive it, he saw it. It was demonstrated as they broke through That roof, true faith acts, it overcomes, it pursues, it strives towards the object of the faith. And that's why it's on display here from these men. It says in here that he saw their faith. This means the faith of all five of them. And there was something about their faith that was different than the belief that that Jesus could just heal. The fact that Jesus forgave this man's sins showed that the faith they had was indeed a saving faith. A faith that this person, Jesus, could do more than merely heal the paralytic. Faith that Jesus was more than just a man. Perhaps they didn't have a full understanding of who he was, but they had a better understanding than the crowds and the Pharisees. 
They knew that this Jesus was more than a mere man. And that's why these men were putting all their hope in this Jesus of Nazareth. And they had to get to him right now. And I'm certain that they had heard his message of the gospel. And I believe, because Jesus said their sins were forgiven, that they believed in that message of the gospel. And it was that faith, that saving faith, that led Jesus to absolve this paralytic man of all of his sin. Now it's important to note, especially during Jesus' day, that people often associated sickness with sin, and rightly so. Throughout the Old Testament, sin and sickness are frequently connected, as is forgiveness and healing. We read earlier Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. We see the same language in other places in the Old Testament, in other Psalms, like in Psalm 41. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. But today we don't like to associate sin with sickness in our scientific world today. But in reality, sin is at the root of all sickness. This doesn't mean that each sickness that we endure can be directly connected to a specific sin in our life. So you may be wondering, hearing me at the sniffles this morning, okay, what sin did Steve commit this week? Other than not taking my allergy medicine as early as I should have, I'm not aware of anything, but there might be something. So it doesn't mean that necessarily every specific illness in our life is directly tied to a specific sin. Although that can happen, there are examples of that in the scriptures. Taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner led many to be sick and some even to die. And we also know there's other situations like in John chapter 9 or in, in the situation with Job. That the illness or the ailment has nothing to do with the specific sin in their life. But still we must recognize that all sickness is related to sin and that all sickness is the result of the fall. We've all inherited Adam's sinful nature and guilt and thus we will continually fall into sickness for sickness is a part of the curse that's upon us. So here, Jesus, by forgiving this man's sin, Jesus is making a direct connection between sin and sickness. Let me say this, healing is guaranteed for all Christians. Maybe not now, but one day all who are in Christ will be healed and will receive perfected bodies that no longer get sick. And the first step towards that healing is the forgiveness of our sins. For only then do we enter into union with Christ and all the benefits that come from that union, including perfect health and perfect bodies that we will receive upon Christ's return. Until then, our bodies are ravaged by sickness, which is the result of the sinful condition of man. And we should not be afraid to look for spiritual reasons behind sicknesses. And we should not be afraid to ask God to heal us of our infirmities now, so long as we have the posture of, thy will be done, not mine. But here Jesus deals with the man's sin first before he deals with his physical healing. Everyone was expecting the man to receive physical healing. And what he got was spiritual healing, the forgiveness of sins. And as I said, that shocked everyone, but it especially shocked a group of men who were there. And they had front row seats. So they were some of the ones blocking the way. Front row seats, there were some scribes and Pharisees. And so the next thing is I want us to see how the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees saw him as merely a man. So they responded with hardened unbelief. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, 
Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And if you look over in Luke's version of this story, Luke 5, 17, it says there were Pharisees there as well. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. So there, there were all these scribes and Pharisees present. The scribes were the theologians and the scholastics of the day, the seminary professors, if you will. And the Pharisees were the teachers and the preachers. And what we have represented here as they're sitting there listening to Jesus are the best and the brightest, the elite. And they had heard about this Jesus and they had come to examine him and to see what this man was up to. Of course, the Pharisees were already upset at Jesus. They were already concerned that he was baptizing more people than John was. And we read that earlier as we looked through the Gospel of John. And now they hear that he's got this operation going on up in Canaan. And that there's healings. And that a leper has been healed. And so they need to make their way up there. And see what's going on. All these seminary professors and preachers. But notice something. They're just part of the crowd. They're part of the problem. They're sitting here front and center while the paralytic is outside in desperate need. Cold religion will do that to you. It'll make you callous to true suffering. And that's what was happening with these men. Now these men hear Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven. And they get upset. Why does this man speak like this? And they were right. They were right to acknowledge that only God could forgive sin. But they were wrong not to realize that God incarnate was standing before them. The question was this in their minds. Either this man is blaspheming or he is God. That was the only question. They, there were only two options. Either he's a blasphemer deserving of death or he's God. There's only two options here. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. When we think about what sin really is, ultimately only God can forgive sin. Sin is treason against God first and foremost. Yes, when we do sin, we hurt others as well. And they can forgive us for hurting them. But the one who has been hurt the most by our sin is God. Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin, all sin, is cosmic treason against God, rebellion against God. And because God is holy, 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 and sin is infinitely offensive to God, it will deserve and receive infinite wrath. So what men need salvation from is the wrath of God. For God will punish all sin. To not do so would make him an unjust God. So God must uphold his justice, his holiness, and punish sin. So sin is primarily an offense against God, and only God can forgive it. So by saying that he forgave this man's sins, Jesus was taking on a role that only God could fulfill. Thus, these men say that he's blaspheming. Of course, for the Jews, blasphemy was punishable by stoning. Now, this is the first time in Jesus' ministry, well, this is one of the first times that we see the Pharisees beginning to believe that Jesus is deserving of death. This story is actually part of a larger collection of stories that we're going to be going through over the next few weeks. Chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, there are five confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And at the very end of those section of stories, they decide they're going to put him to death. We've had enough of this. We're putting this man to death. So we know from these stories that follow that the scribes and the Pharisees did not believe. Instead, they seemed to get more stiff-necked, harder and harder with each story. 
harder and harder hearts. You can almost see their hearts hardening as the gospel progresses. And here they refuse to believe in Jesus and they respond with hardened unbelief. They had right theology but failed to see the image of the invisible God right before them. They failed to see Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. They saw him as a mere man who dared to claim that he could do what only the Almighty could do. But Jesus was about to show them and declare to them that he was no mere man. So the fourth and final point this morning is how did Jesus see himself? Jesus saw himself as the Son of Man. So he responded with unlimited authority. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that, that they thus question within themselves. Now, now, let's pause right there. Here, Jesus is, has access to divine omniscience through the Holy Spirit and perceives what they are thinking. Okay, for the Jew, the heart was the seat of thought. So this ability of Jesus right here to know exactly what they were thinking should have also been a testimony to them of his divinity. Because they should have known the Old Testament over and over again. The Lord searches the heart. The Lord looks into the heart. They should have known, this man is looking into my heart. There's something more about him than just a mere man. But they would not believe. Verse 8, he says to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? This is an interesting question. One might answer that it's, Harder to forgive sins because only God can forgive sins. No man can do that. But that's not what these guys were saying. They believed Jesus was a fraud. You see, they thought it was easy just to go and say you can forgive sins. That's fine. You can say that all you want. These men believed he was a fraud. They thought he could say whatever he wants to say, but he's not really God. So in their mind, it was easy to say that your sins are forgiven for no one can even prove you're wrong. So Jesus, knowing their minds chooses now to perform a great miracle that confirms the word of forgiveness that he has spoken. Again, the wonder will confirm the word. So it always is in the New Testament, both in Jesus' ministry and in the Acts of the Apostles. So now Jesus wants to demonstrate that he indeed does have authority to forgive sin. Verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now let's break this down a little bit more. Jesus' authority here. His authority is on display in three ways. His word, his title, and his actions. He responds with an authoritative word. We've already seen that in verse 5. When he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That's absolute authority. He speaks a definitive, authoritative word of healing to the paralytic for his sins. Declaring your sins are forgiven, and they are. Jesus alone can absolve men of their sins. They are gone forever, as we read in Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So by this this authoritative word, Jesus is claiming divine authority to forgive sins. But also, we see that he responds with an authoritative title. But you say... You may know that, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. The Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite descriptor of himself. He says this about himself 80 times in the New Testament. But what does it mean? Well, first of all, it would have been a bit vague to the people of Jesus' day. 
It was a safe title for him to use. Remember, he's not trying to draw undue attention. He's telling people not to go talk about what he's doing. He tells demons not to repeat the fact that that he is the Son of God. So if he just showed up saying, hey, I'm the Son of God, the Son of David, and he uses those titles for himself in certain places, but that wasn't his, the, the most usual descriptor of himself. This son of man was a little bit safer because it has three meanings in the Old Testament. In the Psalms and in Job and a few other places, it simply refers to human. If you are a son of man, then you are human. Psalm 8.4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Simply means human. In the book of Ezekiel, it refers to the prophet himself, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2.1, and he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And then we read in Daniel the third use, Daniel 7, verses 17 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it was a messianic title as well. And Jesus is all the above. He's 100% man. He is the final prophet to come. And he is the long-awaited Messiah from Daniel 7. So as the Pharisees listened, perhaps they didn't know which son of man he's talking about. And they didn't realize it was D, all of the above. He's claiming that he is man, but more than man, he's also a prophet. And he is the one, the Messiah, the Christ. Therefore, his authority is bound up in his self-identification as the Son of Man. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was fully aware of his role, of his nature, and that he had authority to forgive sins. And finally, we see that he responds with an authoritative action. So authoritative word, authoritative title, and authoritative action. He heals the man. Verse 10. But did you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Again, the miracle backs up the message. The wonder confirms the word. Verse 12, and he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. And they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. When they saw Jesus, they saw authority. Authority like had never been seen before. We had read earlier in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, that they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So here are these men sitting here in this room who are trying to exercise their authority by saying, who does he think he is? And as the people look on, watch this happen, they see this Jesus, and they recognize there's the authority. These guys over here, they don't have any authority, not compared to this man. So my main focus in regards to application this morning is simply this. How do you view Jesus this morning? As Jesus once asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who are you in this story? Obviously you're not Jesus. But are you in the crowd with curious excitement, enthusiasm, admiration for Jesus, but no real commitment to follow him, to be enslaved to him? Or worse, are you hardened in unbelief? refusing to believe who Jesus claims and demonstrates himself to be. 
Maybe you say, yeah, he's a great man. He's a great philosopher, a social revolutionary, a great moral teacher, but he's no God. Oh, friend, I hope you are like the five, the ones that had active faith. I hope that you this morning are like them and you see that Jesus is no mere man. And I hope you, like them, hear what Jesus has to say, that only he has power to forgive sins. He has the power because ultimately he would lay down his life for sin. And he would take the curse that we deserve upon himself. And he would absorb God's wrath on our behalf. I hope you will hear that this morning. That Jesus is the Son of Man and that you will believe. Believe in Jesus, the God-man, the Son of Man. For only he has authority. Authority to forgive your sin. There's no debating Jesus' authority. It's right here. It's clear. People can debate who has authority in our different branches of government until the cows come home. But Jesus' authority is on clear display. The question is, are you going to bow to it now or later? Because you will submit to the authority of Christ one way or another. Either with a willing knee bowed to the ground now or a knee that's bent and bowed to the ground later. For every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Acts 13, 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm sure that these friends of this paralytic came to Jesus because they believed what I just read there. That through this man, this man, forgiveness of sins was available. We know it was being proclaimed. Jesus was proclaiming the gospel. The problem is so many people didn't want to hear the gospel, couldn't hear the gospel. Crowds, they liked Jesus, but they didn't like the message, Father, you sent Jesus to proclaim and to live. Father, we know it's the same in our day. There are many people who love going to crowded gatherings that admire Jesus. But one-on-one, they have no desire to serve him. They have no love for him in their heart. They have curious excitement. So God, I pray that you would turn, if there be any in this room this morning that are part of the crowd, Lord, that you'd bring them out of that crowd that you'd give them that active faith, the faith that these men and this paralytic had, active faith that pursues, that desires, that aims for. And Father, you'd give them the fruit of that aim and that desire, namely your Son. So God, I just pray this morning that you would turn hearts from hard-heartedness, from passive curiosity to active faith. Active faith, faith that seeks you, Lord, that seeks first the kingdom of God above all other things. So, Lord, I pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.